0: Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been generously supported by Sanmar. Outfitting teams, businesses and communities for more than 40 years, Sanmar is an award-winning supplier of blank apparel, bags, caps and accessories. Family-owned and operated Sanmar is based in Seattle, with eight distribution centers around the country to quickly serve customers with the industry's deepest inventory. You can learn more at sanmar.com.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Dale Denham, CIO of Geiger, and I'm joined today by Danny Rosen, co-president of Brand Fuel. Today's guest is Katherine Graham, and she is known for her passion about the modern workplace and what it takes to run a successful business in 2015. Katherine is the president of Rightsleeve and CEO of Common SKU. Prior to joining Rightsleeve, Katherine had a variety of roles, including several years of financial planning at TD Bank. She pursued an MBA at the Rotman School of Management during which time she joined the fledgling eBay Canada as employee number four. After leaving eBay, Catherine worked as a management consultant at AT Kearney, working with Fortune 100 companies in a wide variety of areas, including merger integration, marketing strategy, and operational efficiencies. Catherine has also been named PPB's best boss and an ASI rising star. Outside of work, Catherine is a mother to three children ranging in age from 11 to 6 years old and sits on a variety of boards and committees in the nonprofit space. She is also involved in a variety of initiatives and organizations in the entrepreneurial space, including serving on Dell's Global Entrepreneur in Residence Advisory Board and acting as a mentor for Futurepreneur. Catherine, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I'm very excited to have you here today, and as is Danny Rosen on the other end out there. Say hi, Danny. Hey, what's up? (laughs) So Catherine, for me it's a very interesting time in the promotional products industry when I look back over the many years that I've been in here too many to, to really want to admit, but 20-plus years, I've seen a lot of things. I've seen many different businesses and people come and go, and I'm really fascinated by the success you've had and the businesses you've started and run, and I'm curious, you know, what motivated you to actually start CommonSkew?
2: I think that we really saw an, an opportunity to do business differently in the industry, and Ultimately, it stemmed from the technology that we built in-house to run right-sleeve and seeing the transformation that business went through with having more streamlined systems and better visibility into what was going on across the company. But the decision to spin it out as as a separate company and launch it was not to offer another order management platform within the industry because the world just didn't need another order management platform. What we felt the industry needed was a different way of doing business. So the philosophy around CommonSku is being able to you know, share data across the supply chain to help us all be smarter, to be able to pull people together in a community, to be able to have discussions around sharing insights and knowledge and ultimately allow us to kind of collectively as an industry you know, get better at what we're doing.
1: You know, I hear you say that you didn't want to start another just order management system, and I think that's admirable. But when I hear things like, oh, we want to share data and be smarter, I think about some of the typical distributors in this industry. And I'm curious, how do distributors and suppliers react to changing the way they do business?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think the interesting thing that we've found is that the people that kind of get it, that we as an industry can't sit still, that we have to continue to be looking at ways to move forward and to be progressive, that those people, it's been a no-brainer. They've you know jumped on the platform immediately, and it's been a very straightforward conversation. There's definitely a group within the industry that really you know pines for the old days and wishes that things could be the way they were you know 20 years ago or how the industry began and uh, you know the heady times of transactions, essentially of order taking. But that's just not the reality of the future. And I think ultimately, you know, we as an industry need to acknowledge that and and get there. And, patient folks and we'll, we'll wait until people kind of come around and realize that we can't continue to do things the way we always have.
1: So do you find that people struggle more with the expectation and then they get in there and they're like, oh, I can't change? Or do they recognize the change right off the bat and just don't even bother to try?
2: change has a lot to do with how it is you sell it within an organization and if as the leader of the company you recognize that as a business you need to be doing things differently then you need to position it to the team as what's in it for them because ultimately that's how you're going to get buy-in across the organization so if you can show that for a salesperson they can sell more for an operations person that it's going to make their lives easier for a finance person that's going to give them Know, better insight and better reporting and, and better you know, planning tools, then ultimately that's the, the light at the end of the tunnel for what can be, I mean change is hard for, for anyone regardless of how how complex a ch- or easy a change it is. Uh, so ultimately it's, it's really kind of pointing to what's in it for them and being able to get the buy-in from, from the organization to make it happen.
1: I couldn't agree with you more and I would say that Sometimes that leader is the one that sets the expectations a little too high, and that can be a challenge when you get in there with the software. Now, Danny, I know you and Robert have used Common Skew or are using Common Skew. How did it work for you in terms of changing your operations?
3: Yeah. Well. Yeah. Full disclosure, we're proud members of the Common Skew community. I think in the beginning, we were. I think we were the first one. Were we were the first ones that jumped on there, Catherine. You guys? Yeah. You were the second. Yeah. Yeah. After you guys, after Right Sleeve, right? Yeah, you know, when I think back about the days when we started and they were getting this thing up and running, there were a lot of frustrations in terms of, I think, trying to define whether or not it was the right platform for us and CommonSki was still growing and building its platform and trying to figure out we were sort of a pilot group in the beginning. But the truth is that now it's been three and a half, you know, four years later. And where we are today is we are a much more efficient organization. We see the future with CommonSKU because they see the future in the industry. They're carving out their own vision. They're trying new things. And just by way of example, they've got a new tool that we're starting to use called Collaborate. That, to me, when you think about, you know, what's important in, in this industry and how software can address certain issues in terms of processes and how we go about doing our business, we're in a real fragmented space. The Collaborate tool is just one of the most insightful things that's out there and essentially the tool allows suppliers to have access to a salesperson's presentation in a fairly transparent way. They're not going to see the actual customer and contact information but they'll see that we're presenting something that's for $5, 2,000 pieces, financial services industry, deadline at such and such, trade show, and this is the goal that we want and the demographics we're trying to to hit. A supplier can actually add product ideas into the system and work with us to help us sell more stuff, more of their stuff. And to me, that's the holy grail. That collaboration between supplier and distributor is really, really powerful. So that's just one way how BrandFuel is using it and really excited about what CommonSke is going to continue to bring into the fold for us and for everyone in the community that's involved. Very cool. I think there's a little bit of a conversation topic here that we should get into about hiring. You've been writing a lot of late, Catherine, about that. And, and I did a, a quick search on some stats, and I saw that an average company who posts a job opening is going to attract 250-plus resumes, which is pretty substantial. And it goes on to say that only four to six of those people will, will get contacted and have an opportunity for an interview. You know, that's, that's a real head-scratcher, I think, for most. I don't know that everybody who's listening gets that kind of response rate, but I think we all agree that we're all struggling to find great people, and we're looking for better strategies to find them and and then onboard them. And you guys have done a really good job in both of the companies that you're running. Can you share with us some of the best case strategies for finding,
2: hiring, and, and onboarding talent? A few thoughts on that, I think one of the critical pieces up front is really defining what the role is. You know, What are the skills that are necessary for that person to be successful in the role? Where do they fit within your organization? And ultimately being able to define that into that translates into a job description such that when you post that job and you get those hopefully 250 resumes that people have self-identified as being someone that will fit the position as opposed to kind of a vague job description that just says, you know, sales in this kind of location and not really, you know, outlining kind of what the key skills are that you're looking for or why it is that your company would be interesting to, to work for. So help the candidate self-select so that ultimately you're getting to a better pool when it comes to you in the first place. And then being able to use some tools to be able to refine those candidates down. We've been using a great application called ClearFit for a number of years. What that does is it has people go through a survey process where they answer some questions that help identify whether they are a good fit for the skills and traits that we are looking for and ultimately that then ranks them as it uh, as those applications come in so that you're served up a subset of the best resumes that have the best fit for what you're looking for. That has saved us such an enormous amount of time of being able to have those be kind of organized and just using technology to help us be smarter in the way that we're hiring. And ultimately then being able to hopefully bring in you know the best people for an interview so that you're not wasting a huge amount of time interviewing people who aren't a great fit
3: mm, that's good that's good stuff so it's interesting we're talking today because this is the day that the Globe and Mail come out with this great article that was published if you want to build a successful business send your team home at five I love that let's talk a little bit about that and let's talk about getting the most out of your people give us some pointers.
2: Yeah, so I I wrote that article because I was really mad when I saw uh, an article that was written in the Globe last week of this startup founder who said that the title of the article was how I get my team to work 80 hours a week. And I nearly fell off my chair when I, I read that because it's just so counter to the philosophy that I believe in in terms of you know, efficiency and respect for people's lives and what it is they do outside their work and, you know, work just being, you know, one part of what it is that makes a person. So a big thing that we've, you know, done in terms of, you know, practicing that is ultimately recognizing that people need to you know, have a life outside of work, so let them leave at 5 o'clock and, and be able to define really clearly what it is that success looks like in their role and have you know, clear accountability and performance metrics around that so that they can have the latitude to get their job done in the time, the location, the kind of method uh, by whatever it is by which they want to do that. So they have the freedom, essentially, to be able to, to work the way they want. Ultimately what the end result is that I think you see from that is that people are a lot happier when they feel respected for what else they bring to the table you know outside of the workplace and that they have the flexibility to you know be adults and make their own decisions about how it is that they work and happy people ultimately make for a much happier workplace and i think a more productive workplace
3: that's good there's a great simple quote happiness is the key to productivity and I think we could all learn some lessons from you're sending everybody home at 5 o'clock. That's impressive. You know, in our offices at Brandfuel, I was just thinking, you know, about times when we have sort of the negative Nellies and the, the grudge mongers and the, the folks that, you know, their their time is, it's just time to let them go. And they may not be productive. Maybe they're you know, they're breaking rules, whatever it may be. But it, it's interesting to me because we finally let them go when it happens, But oftentimes, Robert and Allison and I don't know that it's time to let that person go, but all the employees know. Everybody else knows. (laughs) And and I'm always like, "Why, why didn't you guys just tell us? And it's really not their place. So how about in your offices or your professional opinion, when is it time to let someone go?
2: It's so hard, and I'm, you know, the eternal optimist, in and hoping that you know we can turn someone around when they're not performing, and and that if you know, if you can work with them a little bit more, coach them a little bit more, um, that uh, that ultimately you can you can turn it around. But at a point in time, you kind of have to recognize that that it's a done deal. And I think what helps with that is being able to have the data to back things up. So you know, if you hire someone in a business development role, as an example having clear metrics around what success looks like and being able to be meeting with that person regularly so that it's not a surprise if they're not meeting expectations and that you're able to give them ample warning, so that when the time does come that you actually have to let them go. That shouldn't come as a surprise to either of you because you've been having those open honest conversations along the way. So it really comes back to you know what we were speaking about a minute ago in terms of hiring and you know onboarding and setting people up for success that You really need to have those clear metrics so that when it comes down to a discussion about performance, that some of it is black and white because it's there in the numbers.
1: Right on. You know, Catherine, I want to jump in here because that's something that I I wholeheartedly agree with. And I look at the industry, in fact, I look at even my colleagues, and I see the mistake happen. I see them make that mistake and keep somebody too long. How do you deal with that? How do you help that person make that choice? (laughs)
2: I think recognizing that, I mean, firing sucks, like it's, it is it is the worst part of management by far and I think if you can view it through the lens that you're doing both people a favor by letting them go, that clearly if they're not performing and they're not succeeding in the organization, they're not the right fit. And maybe if you can help identify for them, you know, where it is that they shine and what it is that they're good at and help point them in a direction to a different career path or a different role or even a different organization where they might be successful, that you're doing them a favor in some cases. We've had instances of people that we've let go that have come back and said, you know, thank you, (laughs) thank you. You know, it's it's typically, you know, months later, not in the moment, but as they've come back and said thank you because it has allowed them to move on to something that's been a much better fit for them.
0: Okay.
1: Great. Well, let's talk while we're talking about letting people go, let's talk about hiring in this industry. So, Danny, you brought up the fact that there's, you know, this statistics say a job posting will generate 250 resumes and you'll only talk to five or so people. At Geiger, we don't get anywhere near that number um, for most jobs, but I would say at customer service and such, we probably are in that range, but, uh, you know, for the technical programming jobs, we're not. When it comes to sales jobs in this industry, which is probably the most popular job in this industry, ad and customer service, we have a different model in this industry. We typically, overall, predominantly hire on a 100% commission base for people to sell for distributors, maybe not so much for suppliers. But what's going to happen with the 100% commission model in this industry? Is that going to survive? Is it going to keep working? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What are your thoughts on that?
2: I'm personally not a fan of the the 100% commission model. There's a couple challenges that come with it for me. One of which is it doesn't leave a lot of room for accountability. And when we were you know, speaking a moment ago around kind of performance and, and metrics and being able to measure success in a role, that if you're bringing someone in as You know, an independent person, in most cases, people are coming in as 1099s when they're 100% commission. And therefore, they aren't kind of accountable to you as a company in terms of their performance. And what it is that I think gets lost in that approach is that the onus is on you to be building value in your business. And if you can't hold that person accountable to being able to kind of bring value to the business, then it becomes very difficult to, to put it a different way there's a huge opportunity cost essentially to your business of having someone who is out there and not succeeding in their role. So you bring them in 100% commission contract sales and say whatever they bring in is gravy. And in reality, that's not the way it works out because they're taking mind share from you in terms of being able to monitor their progress and see how they're doing. They're potentially taking mind share from your team in terms of production support, accounting, whatever else. And they're ultimately taking a seat that could be occupied by somebody else if they're not performing. So I think that there's challenges around accountability with it, and I also think in terms of building long-term value in the business that a 1099 independent contractor can walk out the door and take their book of business somewhere else. And that makes it challenging when it comes time if you want to sell your business down the road in terms of how it is that someone is going to look at evaluating that business and placing value on what it is that your business is comprised of that if it's all contractors who could walk away with their book of business, then that significantly reduces the value of what you have built over time. The other piece of what I'll say and just while we're kind of on that that contractor point is that I'll speak to this from a Canadian perspective, it's very different kind of in the the U.S. in terms of, of healthcare, but if you bring someone in on a contract basis, that means that you're not giving them all the other benefits that come with being an employee. And obviously, the reason why a lot of employers choose to do that is to help reduce cost and not have to shoulder that burden. But ultimately, when you think about it from a societal perspective, That thing that we're struggling with overall, kind of I think this reflects in both Canada and the U.S., is giving people, you know, stability in terms of healthcare, in terms of vacation, you know, benefits, all the other things that come with being an employee. And if we continue to, you know, be societies of hiring contractors, then it sets us up for failure in other ways. So that's a whole other topic of conversation, but I think it's it's worth kind of, you know, bringing up in light of this whole approach around kind of independent contractors and 100% commission.
1: It is a very interesting topic, but I think I will avoid it so that I don't have anybody uh, too mad at, at us. We'll, but it'll be good to talk over a beer one of these days about <laughs> yeah. that a little bit further because uh, it's one of those things that will definitely get people heated up. But let's let's think about the small, you know, traditional distributor they've been selling for a few years. They're at that three, $400,000 a year level, and they really do want to grow, and they do have a good system, and they're willing to work with someone and coach them and train them For them, the flip side of your argument is that they have to pay that person enough money that they can hire a really good person, and they're going to take several shots before that person's actually going to pay off. And maybe, as we know, it could be a year or two before they pay off. What could you do? What could someone do to help hire someone and pay someone? What's a a model that a smaller distributor with, with limited funds might be able to follow? And I know that's an unfair question, but as best you can answer it, what advice would you give to somebody who's sitting there wanting to hire somebody and you want to help them make the decision so it's not a hundred percent commission? How are they going to fund that and what's going to be their motivation behind that?
2: I think you have to be willing to invest in people and I'm not talking just financially but I'm talking about, you know, emotionally in terms of how it is that you support them, how it is that you develop them, what it is that you're going to provide them in terms of tools and training and marketing support and other aspects. So. You have to be at a stage in your business where you see the future and, and want to grow and are willing to take some of your time to do that. I think part of the reason why a lot of people see failure when they bring the salespeople on board is they think, oh, I can just hire someone who has been good at sales historically, whether in this industry or outside the industry, bring them in, give them a computer and say, go for it. And I think that that sets everyone up for failure. Because ultimately, if it's someone coming in from outside the industry, they need training on how to sell in this business It's different than other kind of sales roles and the, the skills are not always transferable. And same with even if there's someone that's coming from the industry and they have that base of knowledge that the way that your particular company approaches the market may be different than somewhere where they're coming from. So being willing to invest some time and energy and have some patience kind of around that is really important. But another approach, as opposed to bringing in what we call that role being a hunter, the other approach is to take what we call a farming approach. Whereas when you have enough clients where you don't have the time to be dedicating your full attention to all of those clients, bring in someone in a support capacity that can help kind of work with you and you can essentially groom them to... How it is to sell, how it is to be kind of successful in this industry and get them to the point from a skills and experience perspective where you can then hand off some of the clients that are currently in your portfolio that you don't have enough time to dedicate to and they can then start building their portfolio. So the reason why we call you know, the farming approach is, is that you're basically giving you know essentially a plot of land to this person to then you know, cultivate and grow into an amazing book of business. And if you keep repeating that model, then you experience great organic growth over time.
1: Okay. Well, I think that's a really good point. And I I think that if people follow that advice, they're going to be in really great shape with that. So thank you for that. I'm going to shift gears on you. I said earlier we, we would follow up over a beer. We'll do that. But in five years from now, I'm going to put a calendar invite this week. I'm going to invite you out for a drink five years from now. And in five years, I'm going to play this section of the podcast back over that drink, and we're going to see how right you are or were or not. Take one bold prediction. It can be way out there, but just something interesting, even if it's controversial. Five years from now, what bold prediction do you have about some change facing our industry, and where we'll be five years from today?
2: There's so many things that I could answer to that question. <laughs> I think the so thing
1: really that, controversial, let's make it really interesting.
2: <laughs> I think the thing that I will, will go with, and I, I have said this before and I've, I've had people balk at it, is that I think five years from now, suppliers will require that we as distributors submit our orders digitally. I think as a supply chain, we are incredibly inefficient. There is huge, huge cost to how it is that we do business right now and suppliers take orders in every way you can think of from on a you know a cocktail napkin on a fax to phone calls whatever happens and ultimately they have to then take that information and be able to put it in some coherent fashion into their into their own system and i think that we're incredibly behind as an industry in comparison to how a lot of other industries operate and that we can't afford to continue to do business this way so I hope that five years from now, you know, that's where we are, and I'm proving it to be true. But I think we have to consciously look at that and recognize the cost that there is to our lack of kind of willingness to to tackle the hard problems.
1: Well, it's definitely bold. I'm not sure I'll give you the full 100%, but I think you're directionally accurate. So I, I look forward to sitting down with you in five years and figuring out how right you are. That sounds good. Danny, do you have anything?
3: Yeah, I got a couple more. I, you know, maybe on that point. I, I just, are you gonna send her a calendar invitation right now for five years? Because I want to be included on that. I think you that got would be it. So I'll fun. put you
1: on it as well. Please, but you're buying the drinks, Danny.
3: You got it. Deal. That's great. Um, let's let's get let's get personal if we can, and I, you know, let, let's touch on a, a couple of, of things other than um, other than putting up with with Mark Graham on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> what is what is Catherine Graham's proudest proudest accomplishment?
2: Um, I'll will give you two answers to that. I'll give you the first kind of on the on the, the cheesier end of the equation and perhaps more predictable. I mean, my kids, I, we've got three wonderful kids. We're incredibly blessed to have to have three awesome kids that we have a lot of fun with. So that's definitely on the on the proud factor, kind of on the on the personal side of things. And I think on the on the other side of things, more to do with work. It was making the the leap to go from kind of a, a, you know, a corporate job where I was a lot more comfortable, had a lot more stability, and had a lot more income predictability to, uh, to you know, taking the leap to the entrepreneurial journey and I think it was one of the you know, best decisions that, that I've ever made even though it's put me directly in the line of fire having to put up with, with Mark Graham on, on the home front and the business front. but It's, uh, it's been a really you know, amazing decision and I think something that I'm, I'm proud of because it uh, involved a lot of risk.
3: Yeah, no doubt. Well, you guys are, should be proud. You're doing some great things up north. And also for the industry, I think, you know, Dale, being on the PPAI board and and um, and seeing the, the investment that you and Mark give back into the industry, I think you probably see it firsthand, Dale. I get to see it a little bit from an outsider's point of view, but you guys seem to be very committed folks and not just to your teams and to your you know, to your bottom lines, but I think to the industry overall. So I think we we'd yeah. all
1: and let let me add an observation there, Danny. I mean, you know, in, in the many years I've been in this industry, we've seen quite a few companies start up and we've seen quite a few of them leave. And I think you're right, the commitment level is there and Catherine, back to your earlier point, you are trying to do something different. You're not just doing the same thing and and I think it's that, along with your smarts and your dedication, that uh, is really paying off. So, absolutely, Danny, I agree with you.
3: Yeah. So, a collective thank you. How about one thing that most people don't know about you?
2: That I play hockey and coach hockey. <laughs> That's been a pretty, you know, fun part of my life. And the other thing I would say is that I'm a total finance nerd. I did a number of courses in business school, uh, you know, in accounting and finance, and I do, you know, all of that side of things for for both our companies, and you can find me sometimes, you know, happily nose deep in uh, in a spreadsheet, which uh, might, might surprise people.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, I'm pretty so sure I that's something you would never be accused of, Danny. Is that a fair statement? <laughs>
2: yes, both
3: things. I, like, at first I was like, okay, hockey, I knew that, but um, that's still pretty cool. And then the financer, but in one sentence you said you were a hockey-playing finance nerd. I don't think anybody. Yeah, wow. Well,
1: so one thing I know is not to cross, Catherine, um, I did not know, I really did not know that you were a hockey player, so, you know, do you check people, are you tough, are you physical? <laughs>
2: yeah. What's What's the most hilarious thing about playing women's hockey is that it's a totally a no-contact league, and uh, if you inadvertently kind of check someone as you're going into the boards, that it, in a complete female way, we start to turn to each other, oh, oh, sorry, are you okay? <laughs> it's a little embarrassing to admit that. <laughs>
1: I did not know that you could play hockey and say you're sorry for bumping into people. This is um, I'm going to have to watch women's hockey. This is great. This is beautiful. All right, so a quick lightning round of a few questions, and you're welcome to, to pontificate on them if you want, but quickly we're going to run through a few. All right, you ready for this? Ready. All right. Facebook or Twitter?
2: Ooh, for different reasons. Facebook for kind of the the community side of things, for keeping up with you know, friends and family, and Twitter for like immediate information right away.
1: Mac or PC?
2: <laughs> PC for computer, Mac for iPhone. <laughs> really? Yes. I thought you were Mac person. No, no. I'm a dyed in the wool PC person. I people make fun of me when I have to do something on, on a Mac. I just never know how to work that mouse.
1: <laughs> wow. All right. Beer or wine.
2: Oh, these are hard. Uh, wine, I'd have to say that, uh, you know, the range of choices between red and white and different grapes and, uh, yeah, i got to go for wine.
1: Ebook or print?
2: Print. Surprisingly, print. For someone who is so in love with technology, and I'm not there yet with books, I still really like that kind of tactile thing.
1: Just an interesting observation, I have children that are big readers, 13 and 11 and, and 6, none of them like ebooks. They all prefer yeah. print.
2: Yeah, so it's, oh, it's, it's fascinating. So
1: we're 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 not just old. We actually have something there when we like print. All right, last lightning round question: Netflix or DVRing TV?
2: <laughs> You'll laugh at the fact that uh, we don't have cable, so uh, DVR is is therefore not an option. So Netflix all the way. <laughs> I got right. one, Dale.
1: It, yeah, go for it.
2: All right, this is a, a new one. Just
3: came to me. All right, favorite Spice Girl? Hulk. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> Sporty Spice, Ginger Spice, Posh
2: Spice. <laughs> come on. Do you have to even ask Sporty Spice for sure? <laughs> I mean, well, Ginger oh. Spice,
3: Red Hair. I
2: never know. All right.
1: Oh, that's, that's a that's terrible You come up is. with one with music, Danny.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know.
1: You got any more even in there, long. Danny? That was pretty good. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Catherine, as you know, on these podcasts, we like to give our guests the last word. We like to have you tell people how they can reach out to you, talk to you, and challenge you maybe on your your viewpoint on hiring or learn more about your viewpoint on hiring. So give us some contact information as well as anything else you want to share. You get the last word. This is it. So I just want to thank you for your time on behalf of Promo Kitchen. It's been fascinating. Uh, and as always, when you listen to these, you're like, boy, I wish they were a little bit longer. So hopefully you can say something here that leaves us one thing more. So, in five years, when we meet and we do another podcast, we'll get another great prediction. So, the last word is all yours, Catherine.
2: <laughs> Thank you both. It's been it's been a lot of fun today. I think my my last word that I would say is I would challenge us as an industry to raise the bar from a supplier perspective to look at innovation and product development and how it is that uh, that we could continually be looking at new and innovative things to to bring to the industry and not be so kind of behind retail or have multiple suppliers, you know, buying the same products from the same factory, that, that how can we be more innovative from a product perspective and how can we kind of evolve this industry on the distributor side to be more about promotional marketing and solving kind of clients' business challenges uh, rather than about promotional products and about the transactional sales. So that is where I want to leave things in terms of, of throwing that, that challenge out to, to everyone to continue to raise the bar. And to contact me, would love to have a discussion or debate about any of these things. Uh, find me on CommonSkew.
1: Thank you very much, Catherine.
2: Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.